From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. Founders get a little bit too wrapped up in their big vision, and they don't necessarily understand why marketing is going to do some boring marketing in the beginning. And it is because you've got to actually build the business from the ground up. You can't sell a vision. You've got to sell a solution to a problem that someone has first. Hi, folks. Justin Schreiber here. Today, I'm joined by Jen Grant, CEO of Appify. When Jen graduated from college and dove headlong into an acting career, few would have predicted that she'd be the driving force behind tech brands such as Box, Looker, and Elastic. But once Jen starts to connect the dots between what she's learned on stage with what she does in the C-suite, the story makes complete sense. On today's show, we'll find out about the fateful moment when Jen decided to take a major detour from her dream to become an actor and ended up finding her calling as one of the most well-respected executives in Silicon Valley. Along the way, we'll talk about stepping out of other people's shadows, finding the confidence to challenge the status quo, and learning to pick winning companies by asking a few key questions. Let's dive into the conversation. Jen, welcome to the podcast. Hi, I'm happy to be here. (laughs) Well, it's great to have you on the show. I'm going to do something a little unorthodox. One would think that I would usually ask the guest a question about themselves to start off. I'm not going to do that. We're going to break with protocol here. I understand (laughs) you have an exceptional sister. So tell us about her, first of all. I will. I will. So I do have an exceptional sister. So I grew up, uh, she's two years older than me, and um, really in her shadow, I would say. Mm. She has always been the, the smart one in the family. And, you know, one of the things that you know, was really inspiring to me is how she kind of pursued her passion. And she was great in math and science. And there, there's even a story that my mom tells when she was in, I think it was when she was in sixth grade going into seventh grade, where a teacher said, oh, she doesn't need to be in honors math. That's, that's for boys who play chess. Uh, and, you know, at the time, my mom didn't know this is when the mom's supposed to fight and say, you're wrong. Uh, so she ended up getting, my sister ended up getting tracked in not honors math. And yet, still, somewhere, I think it was her junior year, finally found a champion uh, in a teacher who said, just take this calculus book home for the summer, and then we'll put you in the right uh, the right level of math. And, and she did it. She, uh, she was an amazing, um, you know, science math woman and, uh, ended up, of course, you know, to make me feel as small as possible has her, uh, PhD in astrophysics. So in fact, is truly a rocket scientist. She's a rocket science. <laughs> so she's always she been a destined big, to be a rocket age. science, but if she hadn't <laughs> she gotten into that AP calc class, that's right. The world may have been forever changed. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And, you know, the, just sort of the, the the pluck and focus of just saying, okay, I'll take the calculus book home for the summer and <laughs> figure it out. So yeah. uh, she was always, it, it, and still is a, a great, 
person in my life and, you know, always inspiring. And, you know, I was always in the shadow. <laughs> well, this sets up an interesting dilemma because on the one hand, we know that if you have a role model, it inspires you to achieve greater things and mm -hmm. kind of shows, oh yeah, I can do that. On the other hand, these inspiring role models can also be intimidating because oftentimes they create pressure. Oh, I've got to live up. How do I do that? And finding the balance between being stretched and inspired and not being intimidated can be very challenging. So how did you, uh, were you cognizant of that pressure at a young age? And if so, how did you deal with that? Yeah. I, I don't know if I was, you know, if I thought about it as the pressure, but I certainly, um, adjusted what I loved and where I focused based on things that, you know, weren't necessarily in competition with my sister. So I didn't necessarily go directly into science and math and try to go head to head with this brilliant budding rocket scientist. <laughs> and instead, I ended up putting a lot of energy into choir and theater and music and, you know, anything that was on stage. And, you know, that was sort of my thing, um, which, which I think is why my parents were always like, I don't know about the younger one. The, the older one will do just fine. <laughs> well, I want to tell you, I went to UCLA and there's this interesting dividing line at UCLA. There's South Campus, which is where all the hardcore science people hang out, and North <laughs> Campus, which is where all of the humanities people hang out. Most of my classes were on North Campus. I will say that I had a few on South Campus. I can't remember them very well because I slept through most of them. And certainly the more engaging conversation was happening on North Campus. That's right. <laughs> so, so I imagine that maybe at the dinner table, there was this dividing South Campus, North Campus line. But to your credit, you were smart enough to realize I don't need to be a carbon copy of my sister. I'll take the best of what she has to offer and then I'll go my own way. So yes. I, I love the theater background. I know that you assumed many alter egos <laughs> growing yeah. up. That's part of the fun of being in theater. Tell us about your alter egos and sure. uh, how they helped to shape you. Sure. When I was, I think, super young, uh, I don't know, maybe fourth grade, I auditioned for Annie. Uh, and so I was one of the orphans in Annie. And I think what was uh, the name of my character was Duffy. Uh, so I had you know, a little singing part and I was a part of the troupe of orphans that sang all the songs. And I think what was was fun about that one is um, my mom tells the story and she said, I was away for the weekend and your dad took you to that audition and I would have told him that you were too busy for this. <laughs> so it was my it was my dad sort of said, let's do it. Uh, so we we had a fun you know time kind of getting into it. And then, of course, I loved it. I loved being on stage. Uh, and then later was uh, in Oliver. So I got to be the artful dodger. Um, which is kind of the the sidekick character, if that makes sense, sort of the fun, kind of badass kind of guy, you know, and and oh, yeah. that, that life on the wild side. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I think that really reflected on a lot of the parts that I played over time is always this, you know, I was rarely was I the sort of boring love interest. Usually I was a sort of fun um, character that maybe had a song about something crazy, uh, and just had a lot more fun on stage than I think the, you know, the love interest and all the boring parts of that. <laughs> I will put in a plug for English for theater. A <laughs> lot of times people may not give those their due, but in the process of obviously having a lot of fun, you have the opportunity to inhabit these characters. And yeah. there's this intriguing insight. I think that you, you're able to gain with respect to the human psyche 
what drives people and kind of what the origin is. And you can't help but bring that to other relationships in your life. Yep. Yeah. And I, and I think it's just critical in, you know, even in a, in a business context is <laughs> this idea that you have stepped into someone else's shoes and really in a, in a, in a depthful manner, not, not in a like, oh, I'm pretending I am a stereotype. Uh, when you really spend a lot of time in theater, you begin to realize, you know, oh, okay. So this person's backstory, this is where they came from. This is what they care about. This is how they're going to react to things because they've had a particular set of experiences that make up who they are. And I think being able to step into someone else's shoes may seem simple. It's actually, it does take some concentration and some really empathetic thinking around, oh, you know, actually, I, now maybe I understand why they would be upset about something or they would be excited about something. And, you know, in the end, once you get into the, the business world and all through life, you, you know, it's a really important skill to have. I remember when I was in seventh grade, we read, read Jane Eyre. Mm -hmm. that, that story for me was haunting because I was about the age of Jane Eyre. Obviously, she came from a very different place. She was a girl. She was living mm -hmm. centuries before. But at the same time, there was enough that we had in common in terms of what was important, you know, the stability of home that, that was taken away from her. And I remember that it was it had an emotional impact on me and helped me to understand this very different personality. Mm -hmm. And I think that was kind of my first experience with what literature, what theater can do to really help you and, and take you out of who you are and what your world is and into another world and, and help to create bridges because of that. Yeah, 100% agree. I love that story. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> All right. So um, we have to ask, did you get yourself into any sticky situations while you're <laughs> up there on stage? Always happens. We got to yeah, hear yours. I did. I did. I think my favorite one was in uh, was in high school because, of course, you know, things that happen on a high school stage are totally fine. <laughs> You're not worried at all about the peer pressure of the whole situation. No, we, we were in, uh, we did a production of, of a play called, and then there were none, which is an Agatha Christie. And, you know, it's a whole bunch of people and I, they're sort of on an Island or something, uh, or in a, a faraway location. And one by one, uh, they start to get killed. And so, you know, there's this ongoing, uh, process of like, oh, no, someone else died. And there, there's a doctor character who, you know, looks down and says, oh, he's dead. Uh, and one of the funny things that happened is as we, you know, we thought it was a very serious play, but as we started performing it, we realized that there were these really funny moments that, uh, you know, we hadn't expected, but the audience found sort of delightfully funny. And one of them was that this, that this uh, doctor character would say, oh, he's dead, you know, and they would all start to laugh a little bit, you know, and by the end, of course, there's 12 characters. Um, so, you know, we're, we're like 10 times into they're dead or she's dead. And, you know, the audience is a little bit laughing at it. So I was the very, very last character. I was actually the only character who did not die. Um, and the very, very, very last scene, the bad guy finally is revealed and he comes at me uh, and I have a gun. And now we were just high school students. So we we perhaps didn't plan this the way a, a professional theater would. Uh, and it was just a little pop gun. And so I was in control of the noise. So I think now in professional theaters, they would make the noise backstage or, you know, some somebody else would be in charge of it. But in our case, that was me. 
Uh, and so th this was actually our closing night of the performance or the production. And I, you know, said whatever my line was and I clicked the gun and it went click. And then I clicked it again and it went click. And I was like, Oh my God, the gun is not going <laughs> off. And so in the, you know, in this moment of like complete panic, I lifted up the gun and I threw it at my, uh, my fellow actor. And somewhere in the middle of the throw, my logical brain said, you really don't want to actually hurt him. <laughs> and so I threw it down and it hit his foot. <laughs> he looked down at A his mortal foot. wound. <laughs> yes, the mortal foot wound. <laughs> he looked down at his foot. He looked up at me and we sort of stared at each other. And he looked down at his foot and then he fell down. <laughs> And the audience starts to giggle and I don't know what to do because we need to communicate the fact that he's dead, even though there's really no reason why he should be. And I sort of took a deep breath and I said, he's dead. And the whole audience erupted <laughs> in laughter and people were just clapping and like, ah, I could not believe this had happened. And of course, you know, we had to finish <laughs> finished the play it was right near the end and you know when we all came out and bowed people were like ah! you know, it was just so funny and uh of course afterwards there were a hundred different things that you know stories of all the funny things I could have said that I did not say <laughs> you know like poisoned gun or something to that effect you know yeah. thousands of stories of how you know much more experienced actors have figured out very very amusing things to say uh, but yeah, no, that was, that's probably my favorite memory of crazy things that uh, <laughs> happened incorrectly on stage. <laughs> well, what I love about that story, you, you broke through the fourth wall, you understood <laughs> what happens when all of a sudden you're connecting with that audience out there and they're part of the production, part of the performance. Yeah. And, you know, I, I actually, as I think about public speaking, obviously many people have a fear of public speaking. And I think it's because there's this mindset that it's it's me versus them. All of these mm. people are out there judging. And that moment when you realize that, no, they're actually part of the production or part of the presentation, and we're doing this together and it's organic, there's such a burden that is yeah. lifted from your shoulders because you realize if it, it, you know, if I mess up a little bit, so be it. My family, were, we're big fans of American Idol. Uh, we're, we're all tuning in. Yeah, there was actually a moment last night. Uh, I'm not sure when this podcast is going to air, but there's a moment last night. This guy Hunter does a phenomenal rendition of this song, and and he's just got tremendous talent, but he's also super nervous. And he mm -hmm. goes through and just completely blows everybody away. Gets to the last line of the song and forgets the <gasps> last line. Oh my goodness! And he's so upset that there on the stage he starts to cry. And uh, Katie and Lionel, they're like, no, you don't understand. Like, that was the moment that you brought us in because we realized that you're vulnerable and you're not perfect. And it's not the perfection that brings the audience with you. It's it's the ability to relate. I love it. And yeah. uh, I, I think that's just such a, a truism, whether you're in a presentation or in a theater production. Yep. It's the realness that you bring. I totally agree, you know, and, and, you know, that you're, that you're connecting with the audience, that they see you as, you know, a person who has all of the things going on with them that you have, you know, sitting in the audience. I love that story. That's, yeah. that's super moving. <laughs> now so, I have to go uh, see a rerun. <laughs> check out, check out Hunter. Uh, you'll love it. It's a great, uh, it's a great uh, moment. 
Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll jump back into the conversation. Welcome back. You're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing, and I'm your host, Justin Schreiber. Let's get back to the discussion. You get to college, you've got this theater background, um, and then you got to get you got to get practical. Yeah. So you also decide <laughs> yes. to major in English. That's right. <laughs> Double up because you want to make sure you have a, yeah. a yeah. viable opportunity after. Right, right. And all those English majors are like, <laughs> English major is the practical side. Yeah. <laughs> I'm seeing how your, your mind is working, Jen. So tell me That's a little right. bit about college. What was it like? What did you get out of that, that double major? Totally. So, you know, it really was about, well, I guess, you know, I guess it would be good to have something other than theater, just in case this theater thing doesn't work out. Uh, So that was kind of where the English came in. And of course, I could combine, you know, learning about Shakespeare, of course, is English. Uh, And, you know, I got to do my thesis on I did a one woman show. um, And it was a Samuel Beckett, super weird. uh, You know, it's a woman who's like caught in a, a mound of dirt. And it's this, you know, two act play where she's effectively talking to herself the whole time Um, and bizarre. And there's exploding umbrellas and all sorts of stuff. And of course, this is all my, you know, thesis for my college years. So it was wonderful to be able to combine both, you know, doing the production and then doing all the research around that particular piece of literature and, you know, kind of having a whole uh, a written assessment of how I did, how other performances, you know, all those sort of things that made it more academic than just, oh, I did a play. Um, so I, I loved it. And I think, you know, it's, it's interesting coming out of, of uh, college and then, you know, still not quite being, I don't know, maybe kids this, these days are a little bit more driven, but at the time it was like, I don't know what I want to do. You know, I'm a senior in college, still have no idea thinking, well, maybe I'll be an actress. Uh, that sounds fun. And uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a wild sort of choice to make. But, you know, in the end, years and years and years later, uh, I realized that as much as I thought, well, I don't know what this English degree is going to get me, it actually made me uh, a much, uh, you know, not just a great writer, but a great um, debater, uh, you know, persuasive, being able to say, you know, convince someone of a particular, you know, that this business will be successful or this marketing campaign should be one we do, or even just in communicating to buyers why they should buy a particular product. In the end, it came to the skill that I did get while being an English major, even though I didn't realize it at the time. <laughs> Yeah, there is definitely a muscle to be be developed in terms of developing a thesis, developing all the uh, supporting arguments. It's hard and it yeah. just takes time and it takes repetition. And I experienced the same thing. The more that you write, the more easy, it, the easier it becomes. I, I've noticed with my own kids, uh, there's such a draw to the phone and yeah. <laughs> most of the communication is now over the phone. I think that there was a moment of horror um, that I experienced when I saw <laughs> my daughter was actually writing an essay on her phone. No, <laughs> and I, I was like, I was like, oh no, <laughs> we we are not going to be no. writing essays no. on the phone. Her little brother, I think, um, is the the beneficiary of my decision to get double down and helping my kids to not write essays on phones. But That's right. um, <laughs> it's the era that we live in. I'm not going to be a luddite. I need to. Ex- embrace the new technology, but certainly different than, than back in the day. 
Oh yeah. No, I need a big screen. I need to <laughs> spread my ideas wide. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So how did you go from there then to getting into marketing? Yeah, no, it's a, it's important because, you know, the shift was, was quite bizarre. I did actually, when, after I graduated, I did theater for a year. I toured with the children's theater group. I did dinner theater, you know, where you get up on stage and then you come out at intermission in full costume and they order their dessert and their coffee. And <laughs> it, was, it was wild. It was fun. Uh, but after a while I had this, you know, deep realization that doing theater a hundred percent of the time wasn't as fun as it had seemed before. So, it, it, you know, in the end you suddenly realize, Oh, I learned my lines. I learned, you know, we were in this show and we just keep doing it. And it's just the energy to get up and do it again and again and again and again. And eventually I realized this is not challenging enough. There's not enough uh, problems to solve or, you know, anything that, that I can do. And I had to think about, well, what was it that made me think that this was the thing I wanted to do? And I, one of the things I did once or actually two summers, uh, during college was I, I ran with a, a number of other students, a summer theater. So Princeton summer theater was our theater company. And as I sat there thinking about like, well, didn't I love that time? Wasn't I super, you know, happy at that time? And I realized it wasn't just the being on stage. That was, of course, the cherry on this nice Sunday. Um, in fact, it was the business of it. It was figuring out, well, if we have, you know, if we do, if we only do a production for two weekends, the really influential critic gets his review out on the Friday or Saturday of the second weekend, and we can only sell out two shows. So maybe we should do three weekends or be prepared to extend to a third weekend if we get a good review because we'll sell out the next weekend. So it's like those kind of what actually are business problems turns out were really intriguing. And, you know, what shows would bring in the most subscribers that people want to see uh, how do we get subscribers to our season? Um, what, you know, and all of these things, it turns out, are marketing. <laughs> They're sort of running a business, the marketing of the the product marketing, uh, all of that. And, and I think that was a real big moment for me to realize that, you know, yeah, I did like being on stage, but I actually loved running the business. And so that was the shift for me to say, okay, I went in the wrong direction. <laughs> Now it's time to find something, uh, something different. And so I, you know, at that point in time, I started doing temping. I took any job that I could. I answered phones. I did support uh, what whatever was in front of me and eventually worked my way to a couple of really interesting consulting jobs. So it was, it was wild. <laughs> so clearly you figured it out. I want to read off just a couple of the companies that, that you've spent some time at Google. We've all heard of Google, yeah. Box, Looker. Elastic. As you thought about picking companies, did you have some kind of a formula that allowed you to pick the winners, or are you just the most the most fortunate <laughs> person on the face of the planet? Really, really lucky. Well, I'm sure there's a little <laughs> bit of luck too. Um, no, I did. I think it wasn't as uh, honed when I, you know, obviously when I joined Google, Google was just a great company and great people. Um, and I do know that coming out of there. 
I learned so much from the leaders that were there. At the time, there was a very small product marketing group and the the mostly women who were the product marketers at Google, they were all the very early product marketers and were brilliant. And I learned so much from them. So, you know, it started at, okay, it's the people. And when I joined Box, that again, I was thinking about, okay, you know, are these good people? Even if even if this business is crazy and I don't understand the strategy and, you know, it's super early. And so we're all just kind of, wow, and don't know what we're doing. Are these good people? And, and for certain that was the case at box and it was, you know, good thing that I jumped on board. Um, I think from there, the second thing that I usually look for is the customers. So I'm looking for, even if they you know, not necessarily hundreds and hundreds of customers, but are there a few customers that wildly love the product that are willing to spend their social capital and say, I love this product. You guys should try it too. Uh, or in the case of, uh, in the case of the job I am in today with Appify, there was a customer who had gotten together a whole dinner of people and said, please come do a demo for, you know, these 15 people who are leaders in organizations that I'm, you know, a part of that I'm networked with. Uh, and, and that's, you know, Looker was the same thing. There were wildly happy customers at Looker. Uh, and of course, Elastic is open source. There were millions of happy developers who were in love with the code. Uh, so that was definitely the second. And, and, you know, and then I think the third developed over time. And that's really um, the idea of a product that can be a platform. So in the case of Box, that's, that was something we discovered sort of, I don't know, maybe a year and a half after I'd gotten there. We started to see like, oh, this isn't just, you know, your file system in the cloud. This is, you can create more things on top of all this content. This is a content platform. Uh, and then, you know, in the case of Looker, that was a wonderful example. And this is not just business intelligence and the dashboards that come with that. This is a data platform that you can do your marketing analytics, you can do sales analytics, you can do, you know, customer analytics. Uh, and, and it's, you know, much bigger and broader than sort of the, the small niche where it started. Uh, and that's, of course, you know, Appify. What I love about Appify is it's a platform that it, you can create apps for any part of your business and you can hook into all of the technology that you have. And it's that sort of, I think, from a certainly from a marketing and, and selling perspective, the idea that you're selling so much bigger than mm -hmm. just one use case, I think, is really inspiring for me. Yeah. Well, I love the fact that your formula begins with the people. Mm -hmm. And clearly you, you were able to kind of hone your sense for the kind of people that you clicked with, the, the people that you thought were exceptional, even going back to your sister right. early on and <laughs> in, in, in seeing some of the hallmarks. But there's also a certain level of fluidity or spontaneity, I think, in the way that you pursued your career, where you were open to these different ideas and, and very thoughtful about, well, where do I get my energy? Let's give that a shot. And, and didn't worry too much about, you know, what happens if it doesn't work out? That's right. Yeah. You know, it's funny that the best uh, example of that is, is Box, a very good friend of mine, Karen. She was the VP of uh, business development there. And I had done all the interviews. I, I, I knew I liked the people. But at the time, it was, you know, I, maybe two maybe 30 people in a, in a, you know, small little office. And it was kind of crazy. And I think Aaron, the CEO may have only been 22. So like, think about that. And we had Karen and I had lunch and I was like, well, I don't know, 
you know, I'm not sure if I understand the strategy the way Erin articulated it to me. Like it's a little all over the place. And she finally said, Jen, just get in here. We need you. Just go, just come. This is, this is silly. And, and I did, I literally did. I was like, "Mm, okay, (laughs) let's do this. And, and I think that was, you know, a lot of it was that I knew Karen and I, you know, believed in her. And even if I didn't totally understand exactly where box was going to go, I just took the leap and said, okay, I get, I get it. Let's do it. (laughs) As I've talked to people that have made really good moves in their career, it's interesting that their the philosophies always tend to come back to the three things that you talked about. Mm -hmm. It always starts with people, that idea of finding wildly enthusiastic customers. There are some interesting nuances to that where if you're, let's say, a marketer, you're mm-hmm. not going to be able to do a code review. You're not <laughs> going to be able to figure out if what, what the pr- company is building is truly exceptional. Mm-hmm. However, if they have wildly successful customers that are passionate, you better believe that there are people in that company that did the diligence before they ponied up the money. And you know maybe there's one or two that every company can put forward. But if you have a consistent litany of of companies that are able to do that, that is the validation that you need, even if you can't go through the code or do all the other things that you might not have the background in. Yep. That's a really good point. I think when I first was talking to Looker, the way they described their product was crazy. They, I mean, they would talk about the, the layer that's the data model and, you know, like, what is that semantic layer with the data model that offers, you know, all blah, 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 technical terms. And I remember being like, is that like a competitive advantage? Because I really don't know what you're talking about, (laughs) which is, of course, you know, to some extent, there's there's part of me as the marketer that goes, aha, this is a problem I can solve. I can communicate this better than they are today. (laughs) Yes. Um, But, you know, when you have a customer that, you know, in particular at Looker, there was a customer who a hundred percent of their employees were using Looker. And I had a moment of going, wait, wait, stop the trains. This is a BI tool. Where is there a company that has a hundred percent of their employees using a BI tool? This isn't a BI tool. There's something different going on here. And at the time, I didn't know what it was. I don't know what it is, but something different is happening here. It was enough for me to say, okay, this is, there's something special in, in this, in this company and I, and I'm ready to dig in. So. So what were some of the early marketing lessons that you took away from those first companies that you worked at? Yeah. I, you know, one of the best ones, I think there's a, a, a lot of founders that get a little bit wrapped up in their own Kool-Aid, so to speak. So, you know, they, they, and, and honestly, it's totally understandable. I mean, they've just spent, all this time talking to investors about this fancy vision of the future that, you know, we're going to take over the world. And in the case of Box, uh, Aaron Levy, the CEO, of course, he's talking about how uh, we're going to replace SharePoint, that we're the file system of the Fortune 500, that the cloud is going to be everything. Um, you know, this is however many years ago, it's like 2008 or 2009. So it was a long time ago. And, but the, the reality is when I showed up at Box, um, Nobody is buying the fortunes, uh, the file system for the Fortune 500 right now <laughs> in 2009. Nobody is buying that. That's not why customers were buying the product. They were buying it for very specific pain points that they had. They had, and they were, and they were boring. 
when I started to interview all the customers, the things that came back were there was a lot of customers that were using FTP systems, which I don't, there, there may be some viewers who's never heard of them, but FTP systems were this horrible way to share files effectively, uh, especially with people outside your organization. And they loved that Box allowed them never to have to use that stupid FTP thing again. So we were selling FTP replacements, which is like, whoo, that's a boring business. And then there were some companies that were shipping CDs, you know, with the files across, you know, they're FedExing it across the country. Or there's even one that they had a um, a bicycle guy who would go from one side of LA to, you know, a different part of LA to deliver, you know, this, the brand agency's beautiful design documents that were too big to send by email. Okay, so we're replacing the fact that that email can't send large documents. Like, oh my God, that's so boring. Uh, but that is what people were buying. And so it was really critical not to not to sort of, you know, like Ghostbusters, don't cross those streams. Like Aaron Levy in a keynote, talking to the press, talking to investors, tell the story of the future. But if you come to the homepage of the website or if you get a demand gen email or an ad, it's got to talk to the pain points, the really boring pain points that we solve. And I think that's something that often in the early stages, founders get a little bit too wrapped up in their big vision and they don't necessarily understand why marketing is going to do some boring marketing <laughs> in the beginning. And it is because you've got to actually build the business from the ground up. You can't, you know, build, you can't sell a vision. You've got to sell a solution to a problem that someone has first. I, I totally relate to that at people. AI, we're doing lots of exciting things. There's big data and there's an AI story and, you know, it's a game changer in terms of the way you coach your reps and inspect pipeline. But as I talked to customers and said, what do you like about it? They said, you guys auto-populate CRM. And I'm like, yes, we do that. But like seriously, getting data into CRM, that's what gets you excited. They're like, totally, we've spent so much money deploying CRM and we don't have any good data in it. We just like that you get it in. And I'm like, yeah, but that's not like a change the world story. They're like, oh, but it is a story that we'll pay money for. Yes. So you swallow your pride as a marketer and you're like, that's, right. that's what the people want. That's what we're going to give them. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And and you know, and then you invite them to the user conference and you tell them about the big vision later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can add on top of it later. <laughs> so true. So true. All right. So you then eventually moved into the CMO seat, uh, both at Elastic and Looker. What were the big lessons as you became the CMO? Yeah. I think I think the key, you know, and for anyone who's listening who's thinking like, okay, well, what does it mean? other than this different title, I think the key is really at that point, you need to be thinking about the business overall. So you've spent, especially in marketing, and I imagine sales is like this too, you've spent a lot of time fighting for headcount, fighting for budget, proving that the budget that you spent was well spent, proving that the headcount that you've got is really productive um, and kind of a little bit jockeying for position uh, with the other departments. Once you get to the C-level, obviously some of those things still exist, but you need to be thinking more about the business overall. And there may be moments where when you, know, you look across the whole of what's going on in the business and you think, you know what, that headcount would be better spent in engineering because we need XYZ features to move faster or our QA process isn't as good as it should be. 
Um, or even, you know, we need sales reps instead of that marketing headcount, which is, of course, very hard for a marketer to say out loud. <laughs> but it is, you know, that, that's part of that switch to the C-level position is being able to almost, you know, step into the shoes of your CEO and say, well, what would he or she need for this business to succeed? Oh, Actually, it may not be marketing right now. It may be someone else. It may be some other department. And how can I help more broadly the company move forward versus just be successful in my own department? That's Jen Grant, CEO of Appify. When we come back, Jen will talk about how she moved into the CEO's chair and why prolonging the decision-making process made all the difference. Stay with us. I'm Justin Schreiber, and you're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing. Welcome back. I'm joined today by Jen Grant, CEO of Appify. When we left off, Jen was breaking down what it takes to successfully transition from a marketing VP to CMO. But for Jen, the journey didn't stop there. Today as CEO, she has additional advice for marketers who plan to take the reins of a company someday. Let's get back to the discussion. There's a level of credibility that you, you gain when you're a VP of marketing, and basically that comes from owning your business and being very clear about what you need. That's right. But when you then move into the C-suite, if you continue that mentality, you no longer have credibility because people say, every time Justin opens his mouth, he's just going to be talking about marketing. Right. And so we're going to discount what he says. And in a weird way, your marketing organization, they want you to have credibility because that's how they're going to get resources. And they need you in some cases to push back on them and say, no, it's not the right move right now to ask for more marketing budget. Because over the long term, what that will allow you to do is enfranchise you to get the, the long-term support that marketing needs. Yes, 100%. Yep. So, so you had the opportunity to work at a couple of different companies. I want to talk a little bit also about just the DNA of the companies and how mm -hmm. that impacts marketing. There's no cookie cutter strategy mm -hmm. that you roll out across companies and, and you're good. You got to be sensitive to the nuances of the company. Tell me a little bit about Looker. Tell me a little bit about Box. How yeah. did the marketing strategy differ between those two companies? Yeah. And, you know, I, I consider myself very lucky for having been in such different companies because I think being able to see, you know, certainly during the growth stage in both cases, a completely different marketing strategy kind of come to fruition and that both were successful uh, it is really wonderful. And, you know, and, and so you think about it like this, when you look at Box, there were elements to Box that basically pushed us towards the strategy we had. There was a, a free version of the product. So we were freemium oriented. We had a CEO who was super amazing uh, in front of press, in front of on stage, you know, he was so young, he had this crazy big hair, he was super charismatic, like he just, you just wanted him in front of whatever audience you could find at all times. Uh, and that really drove the marketing strategy for Box. So it was sort of twofold. It was, you know, obviously we had this freemium model, so we needed to put a lot of resources into the analytics and the optimization of the funnel. How do you get people to that show up on the website to convert to paid, 
to then eventually have a conversation with sales where they upsell the account to hundreds of seats versus the five that they started with. So that was a you know the very analytical marketing engine that a freemium or sort of self-serve credit card trial kind of uh, process would entail. Now on the flip side, you got to put the volume into that website. So how do you get the volume? Well, we had this charismatic CEO. So press, we put a tremendous amount of effort into press, uh, speaking. We did a user conference probably earlier than any company would have normally done. We, I mean, we joked the first user conference we did, Aaron said, I want 3000 people in the audience. And we looked at the marketing team was like, I don't know if we have 3000 customers. <laughs> How are we going to do this? <laughs> but we did it. <laughs> so it was that kind of just wild awareness. With, you know, And then, of course, uh, our my favorite part is the billboard. We put a billboard on the 101. Like, who would do that? But we did. And it was very you know plucky. We said box versus SharePoint. And this is in 2009 when we were maybe, maybe 50 people in a tiny little office. So like, who would do that? But it was enough... Uh, that people noticed us, that people went, what is this company with the billboards? <laughs> Good enough. That's all we need. So that was Box. So then when you contrast it with Looker, Looker was um, much more focused on customers. And that was because they, the, the, they were very focused on data analysts. And data analysts were wildly successful and made so happy by this product. We solved all of their problems. And on the on the flip side, we invested people. So we had a lot more sales engineers in the sales cycle. We did very early on had chat support. Um, so even, you know, like in 30 seconds, if you're a data analyst trying to get Looker to work, you have an answer. And not only that, but, you know, in the early days, the founder would sometimes be on chat and be like, hey, what's up? I'm Lloyd Tab. I, I, I wrote the code for this company. How can I help you? So it's just this wonderful connection with customers. And then when you looked at the executive team, so the the CEO of Looker Frank Bien is he's still a good speaker, but he doesn't he's not like the crazy twenty two year old yeah with the crazy hair. He he is you know smart, poised, all of those things, but he didn't really like it. He didn't really want to be in front of the press all the time. He didn't really want to travel the country and be on stage. What he really wanted to do is spend time with customers. So then that really made the marketing strategy clear that we were going to double down into customers because the company was doubling down into customers. So the G2 crowds, trust radius, Gartner peer uh, reviews, you know, anything that that was about customers talking about Looker, we would invest in. Uh, and and it was and it in and it worked. I mean, it was it, in both cases it worked. It was just a different way to go about the, you know, how to grow and how to mar- do the marketing. As you're describing this process, I'm thinking about another one of my favorite shows. You're learning about all my favorite shows on this episode, Jen. <laughs> so I also am a big fan of Chopped. Oh God! And uh, <laughs> so you have the basket on the on the counter yeah. and you open it up, and I can just envision you like on Chopped, and you open your basket and you like. Pull out crazy hair guy, yeah. put it on the counter. <laughs> what else is in here? But That's the people exactly that win right. chopped are the ones that know the mystery ingredient and how to showcase it. Yeah. And their dish 
is a showcase for that mystery ingredient. And in both yeah. cases, whether it's the customer and the passion for the customer, mm-hmm. or it's the, you know, the personality and the vision that Aaron bring to the table, you built the strategy around your unique ingredients rather than coming in and saying, this is my formula. This is how right. I will apply it. Right. And this the is people how it's that done. try to do that, they always lose chops. So we should, <laughs> we should watch more chops so we can figure this out. I think that's the key. I love that analogy. It's exactly what it is. You open up your basket and you're like, what am I going to get in here? And how does it fit together in a way that can be successful? <laughs> exactly. All right. So you are now the CEO of, of Appify. Let's start by talking a little bit about what Appify does. Yeah. So we are an enterprise no-code app platform. So what does that mean? Fancy words. Uh, basically, it means we have a platform that sits on top of you know whatever technology you have as a company. So if you have Salesforce or SAP or even QuickBooks, we sit on top of it and you can create apps uh, using the data from any of the, the data sources that you have. And um, in particular, you can create apps without writing any code. Uh, and you know it, it's funny, if you think about uh, Google Forms, for an example. Uh, that is a no-code application. Uh, it, everybody understands how to create a form, and then when you enter the information, it goes into a spreadsheet. Very, very simple, but a really good example of what a no-code platform is intended to do. Now, in our case, what we've built is an enterprise-grade no-code platform. So it's much more than forms or spreadsheets. Um, obviously, it's integrated into you know SAPs and Oracles. So there's a lot of complexity just in the data sources, but also in the workflows that you can create when you create apps. So there's not just there's you know you can put things on maps. You've got calendars, all sorts of functionality that you know, any company would need in order to create a, you know, sort of digitize a sophisticated business process that, you know, maybe they use paper before, or maybe they've been sending around Excel spreadsheets, or maybe it's just a new process that they need to start doing to, you know, go after a new market for, let's say. Um, And that's really easy to do with Appify and creating an app. So tell us a little bit about how you were introduced to the opportunity and the thought process that you went through to decide this is my next step. Yeah, it, and it took a long time. And uh, it was interesting. So when uh, Google acquired Looker, that, of course, gives you this moment as you know someone at Looker going, hmm, what do I want to do next? And there was a part of me that was like, well, I love Google. And then there's another part of me that was like, but I've been at Google. <laughs> I've done this. You know, do I want to go back? Is this my path? And so that was sort of the question I was asking myself as I, you know, did whatever, you know, kept going through the acquisition and helping out my team. And um, I really had that moment where I stepped back and I said, okay, you know what? I've done the CMO thing uh, and I've done it a lot. And it's time to do something different. It's time to, you know, try something I hadn't tried before. So I just decided that, you know, CEO was what I wanted to do. And I figured it would take years. And so I would just start talking about it. So I did and eventually got introduced to Hari. So Hari is the founder of Appify. And um, he actually co-founded ServiceMax. He spent 10 to 12 years there building that from nothing to an acquisition by GE. And, um, we really got along. Like we got along in in many different ways. Like at first it was the, 
you know, he is a product and engineering person. You know, that's his his wheelhouse. My wheelhouse is marketing sales, uh, customer success, you know, all the go-to-market engine piece of it. So that was definitely a fit. But we also got along from, you know, how we think about culture in a company and how important people are. And, um, you know, lots of different things. And we, we literally spent six months getting together, having coffee, talking about culture, talking about the strategy, talking about different ways we could go to market with this product, talking about no code, talking about creating categories, you know, whatever. We, we talked about everything. And um, it was just very clear, you know, at some point during that six month period of time that this was the company that I really wanted to be a part of, that this was the partnership that I really wanted to be a part of my first CEO gig. Uh, because here was a founder who, brilliant in his own right, and fundamentally did not want to be the CEO. Like he was very clear, I do not want this job. I want to build the product, and and that was part of I think uh, the allure for me was to have you know none of that conflict between the founder and a CEO who gets brought in. And, and not only was there none of the conflict, he will often joke. He'll send me emails and say, ha, 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 this one's you. <laughs> you have to do this, or, you know, stuff about banking and loans. He's like, nope, I don't have to do that one anymore. <laughs> so he, we even joke about how he, he doesn't do the CEO role job anymore. There's an interesting, another interesting transition that happens when you move into the C-suite. I think for a big part of the career, you're fighting for that opportunity you want to be given a shot. And so you you almost enter the interview process with the mindset, I need to prove myself and then I can get it done. Once you get to the C-suite, you have a fairly large canon of experience behind you. People know what you bring to the table. At that point, there needs to be a shift from, I need to prove myself to, we need to figure out if there's a spark here. It's almost That's like right. a relationship you know, yeah. on, on a personal side, there are some people you can sit down and it's like, you've known each other for years and you're just off to the races and the other people, it just feels kind of forced and yeah. it, it takes energy. The, the, the situations where you see people flourish, I find are those that treat it like a relationship. Is there yeah. a spark and a level of spontaneity that isn't forced? Absolutely. I think that's a really good analogy. And, and is exactly, I mean, it was, it was one of those realizations as I went through the process is I am not in a hurry. Uh, I, in my career, there have been a, you know, a few times that I look at and I say, oh, I was in a hurry. Mm-hmm. And that was not the time to be in a hurry. Sometimes you're, you know, you got a GSD there, you know, things you need to do and you are in a hurry. But then, you know, things that like, like your first CEO role, you know, anytime you join a, a new company, those are times where you really do need to slow down and make sure that it's the right connection and the right fit. So the CMO DNA definitely came through. You dove in and you decided <laughs> to rebrand the company, I which I love. <laughs> I, I got an idea. Let's rebrand the company. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Tell and me a little bit about the thought process that that went into that and how you approached that. Yeah. So, you know, when I first joined, yeah, I'm not, I, I actually don't usually come in and want to rename a company. It's very hard and not usually necessary. I mean, I think I, I rebranded Elastic Search was the original name and I rebranded them to Elastic. And you can see how far I got away from the original name. Obviously, not that far. Um, and we did look at all sorts of different names we could name the company. 
And it was me who pushed for people know, stick with something that they know. We can get rid of the search, but let's go with elastic. Mm. Uh, and I think it was absolutely the right choice. And I think, so when I came to Turbo Systems, you know, I, I wasn't overwhelmed with the name, but at the same time, mm, we can work with it. You know, it's, it's in my basket from Chopped. I can work with that. <laughs> um, but what, and what started happening and we started, you know, laughing about a little bit is, it turns out turbo is a really car related term. So lots of people thought we were, I don't know, manufacturing car parts. Uh, and then there is a turbo pass that's a European vacation pass. And we got a couple phone calls <laughs> about their people's trips around Europe and the turbo pass and why couldn't we possibly answer their questions. And so there was a, sort of funny, but, but things that made it clear that it, it didn't really communicate what we did. Uh, and when we found you know, we we did casually start thinking about app of this, app of that, you know, what what could be a name. But when we found, uh, when we sort of hit on Appify, it just felt like this is exactly what we do. Um, we, you know, we amplify your existing systems. That was one of our marketing principles. Um, we make it easy to make apps. And so, you, you know, apps, Amplify, it's Appify. And so, you know, it just felt like a no-brainer. Um, and then, of course, you know, for for all those folks who are in marketing, I had the glorious moment where I met with the design team who created the logo and the colors and, and the brand and, you know, all sorts of wonderful things. And they they asked me, well, now who needs to be involved in the approval of this? Who do we need to go to to get the, the final OK? And I paused and then I giggled and said, it's just me. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> After, you know, 20 years of, well, yes. you know, we got to get this person and, you know, the head of sales needs to have their say and the CEO is going to have an opinion and the founder and everybody has an opinion. And in this case, I got the glorious opportunity to just say, I love it. Let's go. Uh, and not spend so much time on trying to convince everyone why the color purple is a great color. And this particular one is, you know, the right color purple versus the lavender, which is the wrong color purple. And, you know, I think any any marketer can relate to all of those conversations around images and colors and trying to convince people to put together a wonderful brand and not to have to go through that process at all was wonderful. <laughs> and in your defense, you had done this before many oh, times. Oh, many times. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I go back to Malcolm Gladwell's Blink, where you develop an understanding and an intuition. Mm, and it's yeah. not simply flavor of the month. It's that you've trained yourself. And when you know it, you see it. And you yeah. can move forward with confidence. Exactly. Well, and there's a, there's a wonderful, you know, having had so much experience, there's a wonderful moment when you realize there are certain things it's not worth spending the time on. Mm. It will not matter. Mm -hmm. So like the shade of purple won't matter. <laughs> I can guarantee it. Like you know, as long as it's good, solid design, does it matter if it's a curly Y or a flat Y? Nope. What doesn't matter. What matters is you commit to it and then you're consistent. That's all that matters. <laughs> I love that. It's not so much uh, what are the right answers to the questions, but what are the questions that really you need to answer and which ones can you just kind of leave, leave to the side? Exactly. Yeah. Well, Jen, this has been a great conversation. The time has flown by. I'll, so much fun. <laughs> I will I will end with one final question. It's the question we always ask the guests. If you were to look back across the arc of your life and boil it down to one thing, what is that one thing that you feel really made the difference in your life? 
I think it's that constant, it's the balance between GSD, which is one of the values that we we created at Box, get stuff done, and knowing when to pause and actually, you know, step back and listen and learn. And it's being able to balance those two things. I think sometimes people lean into the, the thinking and the anal- analysis and they spend too long. And when you're in a startup, you got to go. And sometimes you go too much and you don't spend enough time maybe listening to the customers, listening into a sales call. Um, And so being able to find that balance of like, okay, we're going to GSD right now, but now's the time we need to step back and listen. And I think that that's probably, probably the core thing that I've done in my career that, you know, honed that skill that I think has made a lot of difference in, you know, helping companies be successful. Well, we'll bring this full circle back when I was in college writing essays, there was a lot on the plate. One of the things I started to do is I would go for a bike ride when I had to write Mm -hmm. my essay. There was no paper, there were no computers, I had to just think and process. And what I discovered is, if you allow yourself to have the space to kind of explore the ideas to take in all the information, when you do move into GSD mode, it's already assembled in your mind, and it just moves so much more quickly. 100% agree. Yep. All right, Jen. Well, it's been a blast. We're going to look for you in uh, lights up on Broadway someday. We know that ultimately you will you will <laughs> land back my, there again. And my until retirement then, job. <laughs> exactly. Continue to build great, great companies. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing that as well. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in today to Legends of Sales and Marketing. For more inspiring stories about how today's most influential sales and marketing execs got their start and made their mark, be sure to check out the full lineup of guests. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you find interesting conversations. This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams and boxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.